Welcome to a special edition of the Passing Judgment podcast. We have late breaking news tonight. The President of the United States just commuted the sentence of Roger Stone, his longtime political ally. And producer Joe Armstrong and I are going to very quickly unpack what this means, how the president has this power, and what this might mean for future presidents. So without further ado, producer Joe Armstrong, back yet again. Thank you very much for passing judgment with us. You're welcome. You know, Jessica, full disclosure here, I was trying to take a nap. I'm really bad at (laughs) napping, and I am quite perturbed that Mr. Trump has now disturbed my nap by pardoning Mr. Stone, or not pardoning. That's an important distinction we're going to get to in a second, by commuting the sentence of Mr. Stone. So in light of this, let's go back to the beginning, or at least the origins of the concept of pardoning and commuting of sentences. Where does the president have the power to pardon? And where did it come from? It's in the Constitution. And the Constitution gives the president broad power. So the president doesn't have to wait until somebody is convicted of a crime. You can prospectively pardon someone. See, for example, President Gerald Ford pardoning uh, former President Richard Nixon, who is not yet convicted of any crime, because President Ford said, we need to move on as a country. We need to heal For our purposes, it shows, again, you don't have to wait for a crime to go through the criminal justice process. People forget, except for on Friday nights, uh, or on certain Friday nights when certain presidents commute the sentences of certain friends, how broad this power really is. It seems like a strange thing to include in the Constitution. It seems like the founding fathers were always so good about being prescient about things that may come to pass and like the divine right of kings and avoiding that sort of thing. But here we are with a man who was convicted of lying in a federal investigation. I'm talking about Mr. Stone here. Why give the person so much power to do something like that? So the president has this power for federal crimes only, and every governor has this power for state crimes only. And in a sense, it can be seen as a safeguard against any sort of glitches in the criminal justice system. It's also a relic kind of a holdover from um, from Britain, where the kings would have this type of power. But it's... It's been used and abused, but let's remember that the typical situation is that there is a office in the Department of Justice that people specifically appeal to, and they say, I would like to have a pardon for these reasons. My sentence was unjust, or you know, for XYZ reasons, I have re- rehabilitated myself. It serves the public good for you to either pardon me or commute my sentence. The typical is not that you would see a uh, public relations campaign by Roger Stone, a former confidant of the president, out in the open with the president on Twitter dangling the potential of a pardon, not just to Roger Stone, but to other people who might have been providing dirt on the president. That's not the way this typically happens. You almost always would go through that pardon office that, again, is a segment of the Department of Justice. And let me say again, Mr. Stone was convicted of lying in a federal investigation. Mr. Trump, in this particular case, a man who has made a big deal about being a law and order president. We hear that a lot out of his mouth at his rallies on Twitter, tweet storms. 
but here he's gone and commuted the sentence of a man who lied in a federal investigation. Now, this brings me to the point, which is a specific detail about this, which you and I were discussing a moment ago when we were preparing to do this breaking news thing. And Stones, he wasn't technically pardoned. His sentence was commuted. Now, tell us why that's significant, what the difference is between those two things. So a pardon is more like an all-out exoneration, And a pardon carries with it potentially the implication that you admitted guilt. The other issue with respect to a pardon is that once you receive a pardon for specific crimes, then you can't later be, for instance, called before a grand jury and say, I'm invoking my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination because you've already been pardoned for those crimes. So that could have also been in President Trump's mind. A commutation really just means we're reducing the sentence. And in this case... It's reducing the sentence to zero. I do want to pick up on one thing you said, and I I hear the anger in your voice and I hear the frustration in your voice. And this is probably the moment for us to be honest with our listeners that neither one of us are actually registered Democrats. We neither one of us actually consider ourselves partisans. We both care deeply about this country and we both, I think, at bottom think that the question should not be you know, do you like President Trump? The question should be, do you want a president of the United States who uses this very important constitutional power to pardon or commute sentences and to use it to free one of his friends, his longest political serving political consultant, who, again, was convicted of thwarting a congressional investigation into whether or not President Trump colluded with of the Russian government during the 2016 election. It was a very serious investigation. Congress was unable to obtain all the information that it needed, in part because Roger Stone uh, did things like lied to Congress, withheld documents, and threatened people for um, if, if they cooperated with Congress. These are not just process crimes. Obstruction of justice, obstruction of Congress, these are incredibly important crimes because they prevent us from being able, almost by definition, to get to the truth of the issue. And so I apologize for the aside, but I I do think it's a moment to kind of let our listeners in and know this is not about, you know, we don't like Republicans or we like Democrats. This is about, do you want the person in the Oval Office to be using this awesome power in this way? Yeah, given the power of the position and how much influence it has, I mean, this seems like just another... Another instance of this particular man, this particular person in this particular position who has exposed all the cracks, all the, you know, uh, broken the norms, love him or hate him, he is breaking norms. Um, But, you know, it brings me back to where do we go from here? You know, this has come up in a lot of legal conversations that... you know, the, the, there, aren't, there are things that are not enshrined in law that have become norms in our society, uh, in our legal system. And, you know, we just, just kind of that's the way we do things in our country. And apparently that is not the case. And it makes me wonder, like, when, how, when does it go back? Will it ever go back? Can you get that genie back inside the bottle? And the, given that the wheels of our government, as I understand it from my sophomore year in high school government class, the wheels of our government are built to turn slowly, intentionally to prevent things like drastic turns. We sometimes talk about the turning of the oil tanker, 
you know, as the metaphor for our country and our judicial system. And, you know, when you jerk the wheel one way or another, it, it can come off in your hands or the boat can run aground somewhere. So I don't know. I'm kind of mixing my metaphors. But, yeah, this does kind of get to me, especially for someone who, again, talks so much about the rule of law. So but let's let's ease down off that for just a second and tell me, like, is the, is the president's power limited in any way when it comes to this sort of thing? Are there any restrictions whatsoever? Because we've talked about the fact, again, that you can't indict a sitting president. But is there a limit? Uh, so the president has really unlimited authority to pardon or commute for federal offenses. Of course, the president has no power when it comes to, as we just said, state offenses. But I actually want to pick up on something you just said about the norm breaking. And let's go back to the Roger Stone case for a moment. And let's remember what happened. And so Roger Stone was uh, convicted of, again, uh, lying to Congress, of thwarting a congressional investigation, again, dealing with the 2016 election and President Trump's potential involvement with the Russian government. And the Department of Justice lawyers asked for a specific sentence under the federal guidelines. President Trump complained, said that sentence is way too long. Attorney General Barr intervened, and in protest, some career members of the Department of Justice, career prosecutors, uh, left the case. I think, I believe one of them actually left the Department of Justice. Others just, just said, I'm off this case. They were replaced by people who at prosecutors who asked for a more lenient sentence. So I bring that up to show an, another aspect of norm breaking that we're seeing in this presidency and to show that there is an erosion of the independence of the Department of Justice. It's something that we're actually going to devote an entire episode to of talking about why the Department of Justice should be independent why it's a problem to have an attorney general who's an enormously effective advocate for the president of the United States, not, in my view, a particularly effective advocate for the American people. Oh, boy. Where do we go from here? It feels like there's now we have federal prosecutors working out at uh, Big Al's Gator World on A1A down the road from Mar-a-Lago instead of doing what they were trained to do and go to college for. So tell me... Uh, let's back let's back out of Roger Stone again because it's going to get my feathers yeah. ruffled again. But like, how do most people wind up getting a pardon? We know the president has the power to do so. It's been used many, many times. It's something that you see uh, again. And the distinction is Stone wasn't pardoned. His uh, sentence was commuted. He was about to go to the big, big house, but his appeal got denied earlier this afternoon, if I'm getting my facts straight. But how, again, backing out of Stone, how do most people wind up getting a pardon? Well, they apply to the Office of the Pardon Attorney, which, as we said briefly, is part of the Department of Justice. And they go through a process, and there are certain factors that the attorneys in the Department of Justice look at. They would look to see if the sentence really feels out of bounds with the particular crime, if there's some sort of extenuating circumstances here where, again, the question you're really asking is, does it serve the public good to either pardon this person or to commute and therefore lessen their sentence. And look, President Trump is not alone in pardoning a political ally. We certainly have seen that with other presidents, Democratic presidents, Republican presidents. This crosses party lines. But President Trump does stand alone in the sense that he dangles pardons before political allies who may be, for instance, about to speak to Robert Mueller in the middle of the Mueller investigation, or may be um, about to speak to Congress in the middle of a congressional investigation. 
And typically speaking, what you see is a, a president really wait and commute or pardon their friends right about the time that they're um, walking out the door to their successor's inauguration. And so this is just a whole new ball game where we're using, uh, where here we have a president using the pardon power um, as as a way, in in my view, really to thwart congressional investigations and to thwart criminal investigations as well. Yeah, it seems to me people most normally see this sort of thing. You mentioned this specific case. I was going to make the same reference, which is that right before you know they write the note to their successor and leave it in the top drawer of the resolute desk in the Oval Office of the White House, that's normally when you see this kind of thing. You know, uh, Obama commuted this person and pardoned that person, and and sometimes, like you said, they are connected people in some way. And there's always kind of I think everyone has a bitter taste in their mouth at the end of those presidential terms when we see those lists of pardons that come out. And to a certain extent, and the state, you know, people seem to know not to pay as much attention to the state pardons, that, at least that I've seen. Uh, but now, so tell me this. Okay, so this is a power that's enshrined in the Constitution. It grants this power specifically to the president. Is this, is this a situation where we just take the bad with the good? The fact that the judicial system can get sentences or can get convictions wrong, can get things wrong. You know, how many of these sorts of things make it all the way to the to that level where the president is, you know, that that power, the use of that power is warranted? Is this something or is it something that should be looked at changing? You know, we talk about sometimes changing the Electoral College because is it now antiquated? Is it archaic? Is this system still serving the public good, like you like to say? Is this something that can change or should change or should we even consider it? Yeah, look, so in an ideal world, you have two things. You have a criminal justice system that works. And I would say in this case, it did work. Roger Stone was convicted, as all facts indicate he should have been. Um, And in an ideal world, you don't have presidents who abuse the power. And so I'm always worried about systemic fixes for, you know, potentially one-off behavior. And so if you think about kind of any major change in the Constitution, you want to make sure that you're changing it because there is some sort of uh, routine problem. And at a certain point, you can't kind of constitutionally amend your way out of a president who behaves really badly. And that, I think, is what a lot of your questions are actually getting at, which is our Constitution, and loyal listeners have heard me say this, it's this brilliant document, and it assumes that People will lie to each other a little bit, and it assumes that people will try and take a little too much power, and it assumes that absolute power will corrupt absolutely, and that's why we have a system of checks and balances and separation of powers. But it doesn't assume that you will have a president who will break every norm and that you have a Senate that does not act as a check and that you have a judiciary that may soon no longer act as a check. And That's where, um, I hate to leave our listeners on this note, um, but that's where you do need to ask yourself the question of, is this a failure of this specific person or does it, does the constitution show, which I partly fear that, um, the constitution envisions a little bit of lies, but the constitution doesn't envision this level of bad behavior. Oh, boy. And leaving me to ask yet once again, where do we go from here? Once you've broken these norms, once you've shattered these 
you know, they're, they're not laws all the time. You know, we've kind of discussed right. that. And I've, I've heard you discuss that with other people. These are just kind of this is the way we do things. And how when this comes up again, you know, is this going to be an aberration? Whether Mr. Trump leaves in the fall or whether he leaves four years from this fall, he's going to be gone sooner or later. And how many of these norms will be shattered and how do we pick up the pieces and do we reassemble it the same way? You know, I know that changing the Constitution is a big, big deal uh, and not easy to do. It takes a long time and it doesn't happen a lot. Uh, how many amendments do we have exactly? Can you rattle that off off the top of your head? I certainly can't. There's actually 27 amendments. I know that only because I've been to a number of conferences where uh, there's been a proposal for a 28th Amendment dealing with uh, something I've studied, money and politics. And so it is true that our federal constitution really is – it's it's like our nation's Bible, and we don't add to it very much. And the answers to all of your questions, and I hate to give listeners this punt, but we'll know – you know, Producer Joe, we'll know in a few years when we're having this conversation, we'll know if – President Trump was an aberration, or we'll know if he set a new trend. You know, where do we go from here in the short term? We really hope that we're helping to educate people a little bit. We really hope that we're allowing people to think through these issues. Even if you don't agree with us, we hope that we are contributing to the conversation and that you exercise your right to vote. This is our mantra. Should we end with our mantra, which is please vote, please vote, please vote? And please feel very comfortable voting by mail. Is there anything you want to add, Producer Joe? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Vote, you know, exercise that right. Not everyone has it in our world. So it's a a very precious thing. And we need to defend that right uh, by any means necessary. And yes, of course, vote by any way that you can. I mean, I know that I certainly will be standing in a line if I have to. Uh, I would risk a lot this time around to do so. And the the one thing I want to leave is a little, just a little bit of maybe peculiar levity is that we're, Mr. Stone has a Richard Nixon tattoo. I thought that Nixon thing was going to come back around. We talked about him in the beginning of this. Between his shoulder blade, somewhere on his back, I've seen pictures of this. You can look it up yourself. I encourage you to do so. It's just weird. It's very, very weird to have a Richard Nixon tattoo. I would like to leave everyone with that. And how am I going to get to, how am I going to get to sleep now? He's ruined my nap. You know what? This is how crazy our Friday night is. Ending with an image of a Richard Nixon tattoo is actually us ending on a comparative high point. So with that, producer Joe Armstrong, listeners can find you across all platforms at In Depth Day on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. You also have your own website. We can at joearmstrong.com. We can also find you on iTunes. And I want to thank the listeners really and truly so much. We've had some great responses this week. Only our um, second full week on the job. We really appreciate you listening, subscribing, rating. You can find me at Levinson Jessica. You can find the podcast at Pass Judgment Pod on Twitter, at Passing Judgment Pod on Instagram. Producer Joe, thank you so much for passing judgment with us. It is always a pleasure, Jessica. I hope someday we can meet under happier circumstances or less less difficult circumstances. You're going to climb that mountain with me one day. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.